Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 41, Justin Severe, Popularizing Hearsay. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Justin Severe. Justin is assistant professor at Florida State University's College of Law. He teaches evidence, torts, as well as seminars on behavioral law and economics and the American jury. His research often brings a behavioral science approach to evidence law. Our podcast today features Justin's article, Popularizing Hearsay, which was published last year in the Georgetown Law Journal. In the article, Justin considers justifications for the hearsay rule. Traditionally, the dominant view is that the hearsay rule exists to promote accuracy. The legal system believes that live in-court testimony subject to cross-examination is more reliable and generally fears that jurors will overweight hearsay. Justin argues against this traditional view, arguing instead that the hearsay rule might be better justified as protecting dignitary or legitimacy interests. To defend his perspective, Justin reports on two psychological studies that investigated attitudes that people have toward three types of evidence. First, hearsay, that is, out-of-court testimony. Second, in-court testimony without cross-examination. And then finally, in-court testimony with cross-examination. The results of his studies suggest that public satisfaction levels with trials or other proceedings are more closely tied to concerns about fairness rather than concerns about accuracy. Justin, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You describe your recent article as a sequel to your previous piece entitled Testing Tribes Triangle, which was also an empirical piece. Can you give us the highlights from Testing Tribes Triangle and tell us how it led to popularizing hearsay? Sure. So I've always been interested in the hearsay rule, really, and started in law school. And then as I started to get more interested in the applications of psychology to law, hearsay is ripe territory for that, in that I think the hearsay doctrine embodies many assumptions about human behavior that may or may not be warranted, or at least supported by the little empirical evidence that we have from psychology about how good fact finders are in terms of evaluating hearsay evidence. So I read an article that Professor Tribe wrote, ooh, I think it was a couple decades ago, talking about the dangers of hearsay evidence and trying to conceptualize it. I mean, he conceptualizes it in terms of this triangle where essentially anytime somebody testifies, there's essentially four things we worry about, the four testimonial capacities that potentially can be infirmities if they are deficient in some way. And the way he conceives of it is when someone is on the stand and makes a statement, the question is, do we credit that statement or not? And he says two things are going on here. The statement on the stand 
does it reflect the speaker's true belief? There might be reasons that that's not true. The speaker might not be communicating effectively, which is the infirmity of narration. That's only sort of half the puzzle. Then it's, okay, even if you have this truly held belief, does this truly held belief reflect reality, which implicates to other testimonial capacities? Did you perceive the event you're testifying about correctly at the outset? And even if you perceived it correctly, did you remember it correctly? And is your memory to be trusted? And the idea here being that if any of these capacities along that triangle are deficient in some way, we should reduce the probative weight that we put on that witness's testimony. One of the things Professor Tribe says is, look, when you have a hearsay witness in the classical sense of hearsay, which is somebody on the stand who is testifying to the personal knowledge of somebody who is not on the stand, you have not one triangle, but two triangles. So the person on the stand has their own testimonial triangle with those four infirmities baked into it. But there's also the triangle of the out-of-court witness. And only one of those triangles can be cross-examined, essentially, the person who is on the stand. And so because of that, there's this inherent danger of hearsay being overvalued by jurors who are not exposed to that cross-examination, that testing of the testimonial triangle of that out-of-court witness. And so in your article, your original Testing Tribes Triangle article, you test this assumption of whether or not jurors overweight the evidence. What did you find there? So I found essentially that they don't. They do tend to, if anything, maybe they underweight hearsay, but they make what I say in the paper sort of defensible decisions about how much to weigh hearsay. So there are two studies reported in the paper. And the first one, I varied the infirmities with respect to the person on the stand, also with respect to the out-of-court witness, and I kind of mixed and matched them. And what I found was they being sort of the mock jurors, they were attentive not only to potential testimonial infirmities of the person on the stand, but also of the out-of-court witness to the extent that there were implications of that in the testimony. And then I, in a follow-up study, I looked at hearsay within hearsay. So to the extent that if we believe from the first experiment that jurors are thinking more critically about hearsay than maybe the hearsay rule expects that they do. What if we just sort of load on more and more hearsay to a witness's statement? Do we then see a corresponding drop in the probative weight that the mock jurors are going to give that evidence? And that is essentially what I found, almost like a linear pattern of decreasing of the probative weight of the witness's testimony when additional hearsay was added into the, the testimony of the testifying witness. And so what did you conclude about the basis for hearsay from that study? And how did that lead you to this new one? Great question. So what's tricky about hearsay, and, and this is something I then raise in the follow-up paper, so it's really hard to say that jurors are being rational about hearsay, because at least to my mind, I find it very difficult, almost suggests that there is some appropriate weight that we can put numbers on, and then we can compare that to how much jurors are actually decreasing, how much probative value they're putting on a witness's testimony. But we can at least say, like, to the extent that more hearsay is being added, and I'm seeing a linear pattern of decreasing willingness to credit that testimony, it looks like jurors are, are being pretty defensible. They're sort of making defensible decisions about hearsay. And to the extent that the hearsay doctrine takes information away from jurors, potentially useful information on at least I call it the dominant theory of, of hearsay, that it's about creating accurate decisions, it's not clear that fear is warranted, at least from what I saw in that study. That said, though, there is a general problem with how we measure this. We can't say that jurors are being rational, and we can only say that this looks pretty defensible. 
you have this doctrine where to the extent we think we've measured hearsay, it looks like jurors are pretty good with it in a way that we question the necessity of the rule. That said, we're not sure that we're measuring it all that well, although credit for trying. And then in addition to that, we then have rules 803 and 804, 803, I guess, is what I'm thinking of here, where we create all of these sort of exceptions to the rule based on statements we think are actually reliable and will lead to good decision making. So we don't need to worry about the hearsay rule that are themselves based on dubious assumptions about how jurors behave. And so I got to thinking, is there a better way to thinking about this doctrine? Many psychologists who have weighed in on the hearsay rule say the data sort of speaks for itself. This rule probably isn't necessary. Consider getting rid of the hearsay rule. I don't know that that's warranted given the problem with measurement. I think instead, maybe we can keep the hearsay rule. Maybe we need to change its contours, but we can rest the rationale on something different and something that I think empirically does reflect what people think this rule is designed to do anyway. Instead of on notions of accuracy and reliability, focusing it primarily on notions of procedural justice and process fairness. Let's talk about your empirical studies. Tell us what you did in your first study and how you tried to test whether or not these concerns about process values and procedural justice and party dignitary interests are the things that are motivating the hearsay rule. Sure. The first study was a classic vignette study looking at lay people. When I say lay people, I just mean non-lawyer, non-lawyer attitudes toward a trial in which hearsay is the prominent piece of evidence against someone. And then in study two, I then do something similar to what I did in study one, but it have participants answer in their own words. And then I evaluated their free responses. But in study one, I looked at essentially a modern day version of the trial of Sir Walter Raleigh, this classic case about somebody who was potentially executed based on, or at least potentially faulty hearsay evidence. And so these were modern day versions of that same trial, a potential conspiracy either in a criminal case or in a private administrative hearing. But in both situations, you had a conspiracy. In, in one, it was to, I think, uh, assassinate a state senator. For the other one, it was to essentially get rid of a boss that the, the two employees didn't like by planting contraband in her office. In both scenarios, you have one of the co-conspirators confessing, and the confession is then used against the other defendant at the trial or at the hearing, depending on which condition the, the participants were in. And so for both of these settings, there were three ways in which the hearsay evidence was presented to them. It was either presented as a confession that was read into the record, so hearsay that's just read in by the state or by the, the person who's running the quasi-administrative hearing. In the second condition, the actual conspirator comes in and testifies, but essentially just reads the confession, doesn't do anything else other than that, and is not cross-examined. So just at least shows up, but you get the same information that you got from the written statement in the prior experimental condition. And then finally, in the third condition, the co-conspirator shows up, testifies, and then is cross-examined by either the prosecutor or the person who's holding the administrative hearing. And so my question here was to gauge how satisfied these non-lawyers were with the trial or with the hearing, and then to try to figure out to the extent they were dissatisfied why that was. Was it because they worry that it's going to lead to inaccurate decisions, that the fact finder, because of the lack of cross-examination, is going to get it wrong, essentially? Or is it something more akin to the confrontation clause? 
this idea of like being able to look your accuser in the eye, this is a very powerful idea about fairness of process. Is that what's driving their dissatisfaction? What I expected in these three different conditions with respect to the hearsay evidence. So if it's a question of fairness, I expect people will find the scenario the least fair when it's just the confession being read into the record. If it's about fairness, the fact that the person shows up and is actually looking the defendant in the eye, I think that's going to look different to them. I think that's going to be seen as at least a little more fair than when the co-conspirator isn't there, not looking the defendant in the eye. And then finally, when you have, I guess this would be sort of the non-hearsay, right? So he comes in, he testifies, he gets cross-examined. That's where I would expect the highest degree of procedural satisfaction. So I would expect something like a linear pattern there, something like a crude linear pattern. So two different patterns, one more like kind of like a checkmark type situation for accuracy and more like a, a line, a linear pattern with respect to fairness. And then I asked also about general satisfaction with the trial. Let me ask you about this assumption that you're making here about whether the witness showing up and simply reading the statement really doesn't push on accuracy buttons. Doesn't that promote accuracy in some sense? So if you have some phantom guy and the prosecution reads a statement, I don't really think that that has a whole lot of credibility. Whereas if a person actually comes in, and yes, they're not subject to cross-examination, but they've taken the time to come in, they're willing to stand in front of a person that they know and read a statement that accuses them of something, that seems to give me more indicia of accuracy as well. Why do you think that that enables us to separate fairness and accuracy as much as you do? Yeah, so I, I have a footnote uh, somewhat obliquely addressing this question about this category with respect to accuracy. So is there at least a perception that having the person in court, even if they're not being questioned, doesn't that increase accuracy? I, I suppose. So what I would like to do if I were to follow up with this study is what happens if I do this as a video study. So this was a vignette. So there's no way to assess credibility here because you're reading it off the page. You can't actually look at the person. At least with respect to the results, what's interesting is if that's right, for some reason, I didn't get that. That wasn't the pattern. People actually didn't distinguish between those two conditions with respect to accuracy. The mean was just slightly higher, but not statistically significant, which makes me think that I'm not crazy to differentiate accuracy and fairness. And the thing was, it did move the needle on the fairness side uh, in that condition. It didn't move at all in, in the accuracy condition. So that is the limitation here of the written vignette, is that if I did this again as a video study, would we see a different accuracy in that middle condition? Does that mean rise? In which case, then I have to reevaluate this. Let me be clear here. The really interesting part of the results in this first study is that you showed that the response in terms of satisfaction goes up linearly as you move from hearsay to the live witness that is not cross-examined to the full live witness with cross-examination. And the ratings on fairness are also moving up in lockstep with the results in terms of satisfaction, whereas you don't get the same curve when we're talking about accuracy. That's correct. The really nice 
mirroring of the linear pattern with respect to fairness overlapping with the satisfaction judgments. And yet you don't see that mirroring of the pattern with respect to accuracy. You see the means in the first two conditions staying the same. You see almost like a checkmark type of pattern that you don't see for satisfaction. For satisfaction, it follows that linear pattern that we see with respect to fairness. And so we can say in some sense that satisfaction is explained by fairness rather than accuracy. Let me ask you a trickier problem here. Why aren't the results here really an argument for a broader confrontation clause Mm. rather than the hearsay rule? And here's why I want to say that. Both of the vignettes that are used in your study involve what are effectively accusatory contexts. Yes. One may be criminal, one may be administrative, but what you really have is someone is accusing someone else of something. But hearsay is a lot broader than that. Hearsay involves non-accusatory evidence, say in a contract dispute, or places where the accused wants to introduce hearsay. So I guess my question here is, is context what's driving the results here? That what we have here is an accusatory context, and in these accusatory contexts, what the test subjects wanted was the dignitary interest. If someone's going to accuse you of something, we want to be able to confront them. Yeah, so I think that's a great question. It actually is the basis of the study I'm starting now. So I'd envisioned that these papers, that popularizing hearsay was going to be the second in a trilogy of papers, the third one I'm tentatively calling legitimizing hearsay. And that is the distinction I raise here. I say I say essentially, like if we think there's a procedural justice rationale for the hearsay rule and that aligns better with what the public thinks this rule is doing and so creates more popular legitimacy for the rule and can get us out of the slippery notions of accuracy and reliability that I think plague the traditional analysis of hearsay, then it raises questions of what hearsay regime would look like. So do we just get rid of all of the 803 exceptions and what have you? And I'm looking, I'm currently testing this question. So I think you are right that context in popularizing hearsay is looking at a specific type of hearsay, this type of, and I actually also call it accusatory hearsay in the paper or alternatively dignitary hearsay versus, so I haven't come up with a great name for it yet, but something like benign hearsay. And I'm curious to see whether attitudes toward hearsay might be different if you don't have that dignitary interest there. So we're still at the early stages. We're still designing the experiment. I had an idea that I would take the current exceptions to the federal rules of evidence, see the scenarios where I could create benign hearsay versus accusatory, and then see if the results generalize to the benign hearsay context. So that's a fair comment. With respect to the confrontation clause, given principles I talk about in the popularizing hearsay piece, I'm certainly not opposed to extending the confrontation clause. Now we have this sort of doctrinally unsatisfying setup where certain types of hearsay statements are banned in criminal trials, but then they're okay in civil trials. But to the extent that we do that, I think there's still a problem with setting up the hearsay rule on this set of potentially faulty assumptions about reliability with respect to what the overarching rule is designed to do, then carving out all of these exceptions similarly based on these empirically dubious questions of reliable hearsay that can come in not subject to the rule. And I know Judge Posner wrote in a recent Seventh Circuit opinion (laughs) in his concurrence or wrote about excited utterances and things like that that he was worried about. Let me ask you a broader question about your project. You seem to not want to let your results from your first study suggest that maybe we should abolish the hearsay rule entirely. You're trying to save it by producing this dignitary interest 
explanation. My question here is, can we really disentangle this idea of dignitary interest? And even if we could, should we value a hearsay rule based on this kind of popular opinion? And here's why I'm skeptical. Regardless of the original rationale for why we developed the hearsay rule, we've had it for a long time, and I think Americans have come to expect live in-court testimony and that anything that's different from that seems wrong or foreign or suspect in some way. But just because we as Americans are dissatisfied with a system change doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good idea, that maybe there's no empirical basis for the hearsay rule and we should just get rid of it. And whether or not we feel that it is odd or against dignitary interest because we've just had it for a long time, that doesn't really give us a basis for keeping it. You obviously have some strong feeling that we should keep it for these reasons, and I wanted to poke at that. Sure. So a couple of things running through my mind with respect to keeping the rule. One reason distinct from the procedural justice rationale is I am nervous because, um, so I mentioned this obliquely earlier in our conversation with respect to what I call the measurement problem in the paper. So to the extent that current psychology research does all tend to go toward the same direction that people are, when I say people, I mean at least mock jurors, and we assume from that actual jurors too, are better at dealing with hearsay than the rule suggests. If we get rid of it based on that way of thinking, I would like to see more research. We're taking a doctrine that has been around for centuries, and there's always a question of where is the critical mass of empirical data that makes us comfortable foregoing the rule. And because of this problem of measurement, it makes me a little nervous. That's part of the reason I'm not willing to go quite so far as some colleagues with respect to their attitude toward what the data suggests should be done about the hearsay rule. But with respect to procedural justice, it's a good point, right? Sometimes what the public wants is not necessarily what the public should get. You know, I think there is value in many contexts of aligning your legal rules with what the people who are governed by them think that they are doing and what they will legitimize. It helps sort of the legitimacy of the courts. People will follow the rule of law. That said, it's a normative judgment. It's one thing empirically to say, here is how the hearsay rule sort of aligns with public understanding. It's a normative judgment to say, and so we should change it to reflect that. But I generally tend to think popular legitimacy is a good thing for our legal rules and for our tribunals. But that doesn't mean that's the only thing we should think about. And I don't want to suggest that from the paper. But then it becomes battle of sort of normative theories or maybe even things like cost-benefit analysis to decide. At least now we know that that's where the alignment is. Should we keep it and go with this? That's going to depend on thinking about other considerations that might lead us to getting rid of the doctrine or keeping it as it is. I just see this as one more piece of the puzzle. Well, Justin, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk about your work illuminating the basis of the hearsay rule. It's great having you on the show. Thank you so much, Ed. I enjoyed the opportunity. To me, the most interesting aspect of Justin's study is that it suggests that when people are measuring their satisfaction with a judicial proceeding, they seem to be emphasizing fairness, not accuracy. When you plot satisfaction against the different types of evidence, hearsay, live witness without cross, live witness with cross, that graph matches the one for fairness, not accuracy. Similarly, although we didn't have time to discuss it, Justin's second study offers similar results. 
When test subjects were asked to write in their own words why they were dissatisfied with versions of the Sir Walter Raleigh trial, their words emphasized procedural fairness over accuracy. Interesting results, no doubt, but it all leads me back to the questions I asked Justin. First, are these concerns about fairness primarily generated in the accusatory context or are they more widespread? And second, even if they're widespread, are these feelings about fairness simply an artifact of a hearsay rule that has been with us for arguably too long? Does fairness demand confrontation because fairness actually demands confrontation? Or do we think it demands confrontation because that's what centuries of legal practice conveyed to us through TV dramas, high school civics classes, and the like, is that what those centuries of legal practice have conditioned us to think? I think the answer here matters a lot, because therein lies the answer to whether we should think about scrapping the hearsay rule entirely, assuming we don't find any additional evidence that it promotes accuracy, versus preserving it in a modified form, as Justin suggests in his article. I'm looking forward to Justin's third piece in his trilogy on hearsay and thinking more about just why we have this most classic of evidentiary rules. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers are Alex Nunn and Margo Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor is Carson Smith. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Park Ronza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle-Greer. Thanks also to the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, who is hosting my sabbatical and where this episode was recorded. Excited Utterance will be on hiatus next week for the Thanksgiving holiday and will return for the last week of the semester afterwards. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again after Thanksgiving when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.